The Rebrand Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. Welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. This podcast tells the stories of world-changing marketing campaigns as told by the people who build them. In each episode, you'll hear an earful of brilliance from a marketer who has brought an iconic brand to life. Ready to hear the secrets and untold stories behind the brand you love? Then sit back, relax, and get ready for the rebrand. Here's the host of the Rebrand Podcast, the CEO of the Harkey Group, Scott Harkey. All right, marketers, welcome to the Rebrand Podcast, where, as you know, we tell untold stories of world-changing brand campaigns. We're being told by the marketers who built them, which is great. We've fostered a community of marketers here, and so I'm super excited to have Alex on today. I'm, I'm your host and founder of the Harkey Group, which is the smallest holding company of ad agencies in the world. <laughs> we have five specialized ad agencies and a full-service agency, a couple hundred employees. Joining us is Alex Krishman, who's a creative director of Alta, which is a creative direction and brand strategy consultancy the dude is is a superhero when it comes to branding and brand strategy. And uh, he spent some time on the client side, on the agency side. He's built wine companies like Prisoner. He's been involved in companies like Patagonia. Okay, yesterday, Alex and I talked about uh, why Patagonia has been so successful and what we can learn from them and how we can take a page out of their book without the crazy way that they've done it, which is super impressive, but not everyone can do it that way. So I thought, I thought that was great. Again, we've kind of dovetailed into this Patagonia thing. It wasn't intentional, but I think we got some gems and Alex has a great perspective on brand. Today, we're going to talk more about the wine industry. We're going to talk about why brand value is crucial to the wine industry. Again, here's my conversation, my conversation number two with Alex Krishman, the creative director at Alta. All right, man. What's up, brother? How you doing? Oh, so good. Who doesn't like wine? So let's talk about wine. I'm a, I've become a wine dork. I love Napa and Sonoma. I have some friends up there. We were talking about Prisoner on the last episode a little bit. I mean, man, talk about a tough category with crazy competition and similar grapes and winemakers and similar taste. And oh my gosh, if you're successful in the wine industry from a marketing perspective, you can do it in any industry, I believe. So let's let's break it down. Like, look, they're getting their grapes for mostly the same prices. And you find different labels that look different ways, like 12 or 24 crimes or 12 crimes with Snoop Dogg and some of those. I thought that was a cool way to like make the AR work. But I, I think the wine tastes like shit personally. <laughs> so talk to us about like other wineries and, and prisoner. I know we brought up before, but help us understand like what even brand value means in the wine industry. And I'll tell you about some other stories I have about Napa and we'll just let's have fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess like the, at two scales, like the wine behaves differently at every price point, right? But the thing that everyone almost universally does is they talk about how there's always somebody who wants to share an article of a study that like they put in front of sommeliers like white wine that's been dyed red and they couldn't tell, right? Like everyone wants to tell those stories about like this stuff all tastes the same when it's in the glass. And it's it's not true, but what's true about it is that like there is a point of diminishing returns, right? That like in the same way that you see somebody who's on like a five or six thousand dollar 
road bike where they spent like an extra three grand to shave ounces and they need to lose 12 pounds, right? Like there are products that people buy that are not necessarily made for them. And so much of wine is made for reviewers, not made for the end consumer. That makes a ton of sense. Because when people go to buy a wine, they're like, oh yeah, this one got 95 points. But if you poured that in a blind tasting for most people, they wouldn't be able to tell which one got the higher or lower score. <laughs> there's a lot of people that are like, do you drink wine? Oh yeah, I love red. As though that's like a, <laughs> as though that's a category, right? So, I mean, I think that like there's, when people say like, buy what you like, I think it's absolutely right. But when you look at like, why is it valuable then for somebody to spend so much more? Why, how can people justify spending 300 to $3,000 on a bottle of wine? This is kind of the stratospheric brands that I've been able to work with in Napa. And is that then bad money to spend? And I'd argue, no, it's not bad money to spend. In the same way that you look at cars and if you say like the objective measure of a car is that it's comfortable, fast, fuel efficient, then the most expensive Ferraris in the world, like Ferrari from 1960 that sold for $70 million, like fails utterly at all of those to a $12,000 Mustang, right? So, I mean, there's an extraneous thing in there that creates the value and it's story, it's significance, it's historical significance, it's... It's the people behind it. It's the place that it came from. It's the processes applied. It's how scarce it is, right? I mean, there's bottles of wine that are be- that were bricked up and hid from the Nazis in 1945. And they're still, you know, like the wines are falling apart. People still sell them for like huge amounts of money. So like all of that stuff does not contribute to the objective enjoyment of the product. But just like we were talking about the train ride being faster in the last episode, versus hiring supermodels to pour Chateau Petrus on that train ride and asking people to slow it down. There's a different kind of value associated with it. That totally makes sense. And as I've I've gone to local wineries that were like super cool with like the story and the, their top shelf wines were just as good as anywhere I've had. And then I've gone to like Harlan where they like treat you like shit and you like feel like you shouldn't be there. And I'm like, fuck this place, you know? So I, I totally can relate, but I'm just going to ask you a point like, like, how did Prisoner do it? Because I mean, they, I feel like they came out of nowhere and then everyone had it, right? And it's not even a cad, it's a blend, right? And it's not even a blend, right? It's even, it has like Merlot in it, which like from the movie Sideways, everyone's like, oh, Merlot. Ugh. So, I mean, how did, they, I mean, the, the label's cool. The, the wine maker is certainly famous, but like, how did Prisoner become Prisoner? I mean, how is now Prisoner like mass produced and like the, I think, wine at a price point to where you see mass appeal, which is pretty amazing. Um, then we could go, you know, Stag Leaps or Stag Leaps versus the apostrophe before or after the S, or you could go to Silver Oak and we go down and go to all these ones. And like, is there a common theme around the brand? I, I do feel that Prisoner though is one that like, again, kind of just hit like a tipping point, like a Gladwell's tipping point for sure. Like, how did that happen? And does it relate to like its brand value or is it taste? Is it distribution? Like, yeah, it's a little of all of it, right? So, I mean, and this is an interesting one because I didn't build that brand from scratch. I I interacted with it after basically a wine group bought it from Dave Finney who started it and they didn't understand. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So the role that I played was like, they folded the new one, right? What's his new one? The the new one everyone's talking about? Oh, I don't know. He's got got a bunch. He's, yeah. like, what's, what's your top Dave Finney, like other wine for our wine people out there? Oh God. I mean, well, the ones that I worked on, I mean, I, the prisoner was great, but I mean, like you say that as soon as it became corporate, the, the QPR changed the quality price ratio, right? Suddenly you're, yeah. yeah. You're Cause on. everyone's like, they're like, no, that's mass produced now. Like all that my wine snobbed, like, no, 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 no. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. It's good. Yeah. I mean, the label system's cool, but I think what they, what they did really well. So like the, there were a couple of elements of the secret sauce for him, right? Like one was doing this sort of Napa based red blend where he was acquiring unnamed fruit sources from really great sources all across Napa. And he could still put Napa on the bottle, which was huge. He was 
initially getting really great fruit and selling it at a really low price point, which is like a classic move in the wine industry is to say, I'm going to essentially take a bath while I'm in this investor valley of death. I've brought in money. I'm currently like not making the margin that I want to make, but what I'm making is an impression. I'm building media buzz and building the brand. And I'm looking at my restaurant placements, my distribution placements as my marketing. I think that's one another thing that they did really well. The last thing that I think that was sort of like key and critical to this brand is he tapped into a sort of missing piece of wine culture in the US, right? Where like, well, drinking wine is not cool. Like people who bought wine bottles that looked like these old dusty French chateaus and they were like in their 20s and they're at a rock show and no one's getting red wine. But you go to Spain and there's like really cool, like young, cool people leaning on their scooters, smoking cigarettes, drinking red wine. And the culture, it like just accepts it, right? And so there's this like, I think there was this little sliver of a cultural insight to say, this is a product that is not inherently uncool. It's just being presented in a way that doesn't resonate with an audience, right? And so this label system was trying to capture something that was a little bit edgy. It tried to exist in places that whiskey was and beer were being drunk more than red wine, right? Like shows, venues, art gallery openings. They wanted to be positioned as this really cool brand for like young people that wanted to drink red wine in, in that sort of like more sort of European way. And I think that's the most critical thing that they got right. And that was like the insight that that essentially when I grabbed these brands at Augustine, at Hineas, Hineas Family Vintners, and repackaged them as the Prisoner Wine Company, a lot of what we did was just like, how do we synthesize? How do we bottle the magic that Dave brought to the table? Like we wrote a product formula. We did these positioning statements. We talked about the model for how this would exist under their umbrella. We built out a theoretical space. We went through the whole built momentum building exercise of like, what will this brand look like in its final form given five to 10 years? And that got snatched up by Constellation. And like to watch the follow through, like it didn't pan out exactly. Like I don't like the way they did the tasting room in Napa, but you can still see the imprint of all that very base work that we did back when it was still in A's Family Vintners. And again, like they sat on that brand for years and suddenly 5X in value in like overnight, in like in one year and they, they turned it and sold it. Okay. Wow. A ton to unpack there. It sounds like a lot of differentiation that they really owned, which is there's certainly some risk in terms of like the label being differentiated, the audience that they were going after being different than your typical wine consumer, and even not having these gaudy, old school, multi-million dollar wine vineyard kind of offices, as I call them, as you drive. So a ton of differentiation there, which sounds like why he was able to exit to Constellation for such a large price and why they gained a lot of steam, kind of had that early mover approach. So, but they still use a lot of tactics that work in the wine industry. So kind of blending product differentiation. There's an interesting sort of phenomenon also that is not exclusive to the wine industry. You can see it in fashion and all these other places. But like the thing that I think made it it possible for him to take the leap was that Sinequinon existed in Santa Barbara. And there, I don't know if you know that brand, but like Manfred Krenkel, very similar sort of like artful label system presented a slightly different way, very different product, but I think hinted at that zeitgeist first and was successful first. And he was able to look at that and say, that's really cool. There's something that hasn't been scaled this way to this other audience. So it was kind of saying one part, like there's a blueprint of a thing that exists. That's really amazing. There's a gap to a different part of market where I have a cultural insight that this would apply. And this might be stuff that he never articulated this way. He might have not thought about it in the, these types of strategic terms, but he had this intuition that this would work and built it. And it did. It went like gangbusters, right? The cultural insight was really like, if you boil it down to like a creative beef was what? I think it was just that drinking wine wasn't cool for people at this different price point and different age range. And there's no reason why that had to be true. 
right? He was making a product for somebody who was not served. And traveling to someplace else in the world and seeing that like this exists and this happens and it's and like there's the same stigmas don't exist. I think it was a coveted outcome, but just nobody had been able to connect to the audience. I think we got to end on that. I mean, that's great as people see prisoner everywhere. I think that's an amazing once you find that insight and you double down. I mean, I've talked to so many winemakers that make such great wine and they as a marketing person, they're always like picking my brain and they're like, it's so hard. We can't get this out there. And I'm like, man, I don't know. It's crazy. So, it, I mean, talk about someone that has to do it really well. I mean, that industry is insane. I mean, there's, and there's a lot of money behind it too. And people that have money that don't even care about profits or margin, they just want it to be out there and still can't. It's crazy. There's people who do it badly. And like, it's to the point that there's the joke that like, how do you make a million dollars in wine? You start with three, right? I mean, it's, and that's the problem is that like so many people do this the wrong way where they're like, oh, I just want to make this thing that I want. And they serve an audience of one. And instead, if you go to it with a thesis, you're like, I mean, signal theory, right? Like I want to look like this brand. I want to exist at this price point. Well, go look at who the competitive set is and like build this. If you have a hypothesis for like, I'm going to connect to somebody adjacent, we'll figure out a structured reason for why you would do the artwork differently. But you don't like when you just say like, well, what resonates with me? What do I like in my gut? Dave Finney did that when he started and he had an intuition that ended up being right. But that's not the smart money way to do that. Right? That's awesome. All right. We're going to end there. Again, that episodes. Again, that wraps up this episode of the Reram Podcast. Thanks to Alex Krishman, Creative Director for Alta for joining us. In part three of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Alex and I are going to discuss... Well, here's the deal. I got to be honest with you guys. We were going to discuss why Alex loved the Patagonia brand. If you can't wait till our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Alex, you'll find a link to his LinkedIn profile on our show notes. This is the company website at alta.co. And that's A-L-T-A dot C-O. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to the podcast, head over to the rebrandpod.com. We'll have all the summaries and episodes, contact information for guests. Like We'll have all the stuff. So if you need anything, go there. You can subscribe to the newsletter. Or if you want to talk about the most impactful marketing campaign, you can apply to be a guest speaker. It's super easy. We get about 20 a week now. And so make sure the topics are great. And we'd love to have you on. So again, we're, we're looking for just awesome hosts to continue to build value into this community. Of course, you can always find us on social media. We're on everything. I think the easiest thing to do at this point, just type in Scott Harkey. I'm on all this stuff. My Twitter is SharkyAZ. Rebrand's on there as well, but we're building that. We're still fairly new. But if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. Again, we're, we're building this marketing community. And uh, if you want just it on your phone and you know where it is, just have it there. Some days we're going to have just sick-ass hosts and you're going to totally relate. And other days they're going to, eh, that was not for me. That's the new world of podcasting. So we're just going to produce five a week and you pick on which ones you want. Maybe one you're like, damn, I, that, that was awesome. That was super relevant. Or other ones are like, eh, I'll wait till next week. But subscribe. So it's right there. We got about 5,000 marketers already subscribed and we've been around like 45 days. So super proud of the team and what we're building. We're going to try to get better every time we do it. So that's my commitment to you. I do feel like we are getting better. So that's a good sign. And we are hearing good things from our audience. All right, that's it for today. But remember, it's never too late to rebuild, reboot, or rebrand.